You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. It's Bill Powers. This is Mining Stock Education. And in today's show, I'm going to be talking about how to prepare yourself, your family, and your finances for possible difficult times. When we look around the world, it seems to me that the end of the US dollar is upon us. And for me as an American, that's going to have severe consequences as all those dollars that are no longer needed all around the world to buy oil and other commodities or needed to exchange goods as they rush back here to the United States. I expect there to be inflation and I expect the standard of living here in the States to go down. If we have war, which it looks like we could be in the beginning stages of World War III, I expect that war to affect my homeland here where I live, and that would change things dramatically. When we look at the banking system and all the fear that is out there, many Americans that have more than $250,000 in a bank don't even know if it's going to be there over a weekend sometime. Even myself, I was thinking with the recent happenings, should I leave more than $250,000 in any one bank account? That's probably the first time that I've ever thought that, but I've been thinking that recently. And I had two friends in the last week come to me and they said, Bill, what do you think about gold? What do you think about commodities? What do you think about preparing for possibly very difficult times? Because I don't feel like my financial advisor who's managing my money has me fully prepared. The perspective I got back from them, they told me was more like, well, the stock market always goes up. It's going to continue to go up. Even if there's a dip, just over the long term, if you keep your money with me, it should go up. So as we talked that through, I shared a few things of how I've prepared, how I do my decision-making process, why I'm in gold, why I'm in miners, why I'm in commodities. And I preface that all with saying that outside of investing in physical gold and silver, what I do is very risky. You can make 10 times your money or you can lose 80% of your money. So with whatever I tell you, just know that you can only use risk capital for what most of what I'm talking about when it comes to small cap speculation. But preparing for difficult times, it's more of a holistic approach that deals more than just with junior mining stocks or resource stocks. And I'm going to share a little bit of my thoughts uh, today. And I'm speaking from the vantage point of a 44-year-old who's been married for almost 21 years to the same wife. We have kids together and I'm raising my kids, so I'm responsible for them. So I'm responsible to obviously provide all of their needs, make sure they have what they need. My eldest is 17 years old. So if I'm going to help them get to the next stage of life with college and so forth, I have those expenses. Uh, My monthly expenses aren't small. (laughs) And so I have that to take care of. And then I'm in a wealth accumulation stage as well. So I'm aggressive with what I do in terms of speculation. And then when I take one win, I like to parlay that and look for the next opportunity to grow. And I've, it's worked enough for me. I've had more winners than I had losers. And so that's been a successful strategy for me. But I just shared that to say, if you're a 20 year old and you're not married and maybe you don't have that great of an income yet, you know, your, your vantage point and how you might prepare for difficult times could be different. Or if you're a 60 year old, perhaps your season of life and where you're at could be different. So I just wanted to make clear the vantage point from which I speak. And obviously when my friend came to me, I said, do you own physical gold and silver? And one of the responses was no. I said, okay, let's start there. You have to buy physical gold and silver. Now, if you're a longtime listener to this show, you understand why you need to buy physical gold and silver because it's true money. It's a hard asset. It, there's intrinsic value in it. It's not just a fiat piece of paper debt that is considered tradable because the government says, here, you can use this to exchange goods and services. We understand that gold and silver is limited and it's 
divisible and it's exchangeable. It's real money when fiat currencies are devalued. You need gold and silver, might I add, in your own physical possession. Put somewhere where nobody besides you, the tree, and maybe your spouse knows where it is. If it's in a safety deposit box at a bank, that bank has issues, they can seize that. If you're ultra wealthy, you're going to have to have a custodian. But if you're not ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy, you can probably figure out a way to store that physical gold and silver within your own possession and use and usable. And that's where you want to start with some silver that's in the junk silver, the 90% silver, the pre-1964 coins here in the U.S., because that's something people would recognize uh, as having 90% silver, and you could use that in a bartering situation. But you have to start with physical gold. And if, if things go down south quickly, your purchasing power will probably not only be preserved, but increase with gold. And now I haven't bought precious metals since 2015. So as I was giving out this advice to a friend last week, I began to think about like, Bill, you've, you've grown your net worth, but you haven't grown your (laughs) ounces under ownership correspondingly. And so I realized I was a little underweighted in physical precious metals. And then I interviewed Michael Oliver next week. And if you heard that interview, you know what Michael believes gold and silver is going to do. And he believes that there's tectonic financial plates that are beginning to shift. And perhaps this is the most bullish setup for gold and silver that the world has ever seen (laughs) because the world has never seen the financial mess with all the derivatives and debt that we have now. And so after that interview with Michael and after talking to the friend, I uh, made a call and I, I purchased gold for the first time in eight years. So uh, I've always been a gold bug, but I was just reminded that I'm a gold bug and why you need to own gold. And so I bought more physical gold last week. Now, when I thought about the difficulties and the catastrophes that could come to America, I've heard a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different theories of what could evolve, even social unrest and the, the great, the deepening divide in America to where the, the, the two sides of America don't seem to have anything they can agree on in the middle. And things are becoming less and less amicable to where even some talk about a national divide. Now you talk about that, you talk in court in conjunction with war, in conjunction with a financial crisis, in conjunction with the dollar falling. And you could have an extreme Mad Max scenario that would not be enjoyable whatsoever. It would be far worse than the Great Depression because of the situation we're in right now. Now, I don't know if that's for sure going to play out like that, but it could. I could see where things could go that bad that quickly. But if it doesn't, I don't want to make a bunch of radical decisions for me and my family and my finances that only expects that to happen. So as I've made decisions over the year, going back to like 2012, when I started to see the need for gold and silver and that things could get really bad here in the United States if things went south, I decided to make decisions that balance preparing for the worst while still not missing out of on the enjoyments and the opportunities that life affords today. And when I would think about decisions about where I would move, I'll give you a couple examples. I was living in Dearborn, Michigan, right on the the Detroit border. So we loved living there. We lived there for 10 years and it was a very urban environment. And literally my yard was probably 30 feet wide across by a hundred feet deep. 
you know, you walk out of your, your house and the next house is right there on top of you. So a very congested urban environment. And as I, as my kids got a little bigger, I think my oldest was, I don't know, five or six, and they seemed to be getting a little small for the backyard, which <laughs> was like no grass. And, and then I thought about what happened if things go south, you know, this, the more densely populated an area, probably not the, the best situation to be in, but I didn't want to move out to the boonies either. I needed the city because I was still working a construction business at the time. And so I thought about buying a cabin farther up North in Michigan, but I settled on buying six and a half acres, a decent uh, middle income home just outside the city to where, where the city started to get a little more rural to where we could have the best of the rural life, but I could still commute. And then if things got bad, we would have more of a we would have more of a ability to self-produce. We had chickens, you could have a nice garden, um, you had deer and turkey and everything on the property. So that's an example of if you think things could get really bad, I don't want to make some radical decision. I want to make a practical decision that would put me in a better place if things really did get bad. And then I've invested in relationships. I've moved since that home and I moved to a nicer home with more acreage and when I moved here, the, the neighbors had a, had a small farm and immediately upon moving, I think it was a month or two after I moved here, the family reached out and they said, um, you know, my father just passed away and this family property has, we've had it for 60 plus years. Would you like to buy it? And I, it's immediately adjacent to my house. So I said, yes, I'd like to buy it. And I bought that with a lot of what I had in mind because now I have a small farm. I have 68 acres. I have an ability to, you know, there's as much deer as I want. There's as much turkeys as I want. There's as much maple trees as I want to tap into. And then I could use the land to produce because you either grow it or you mine it. And then from there, we produce and we consume. So if society isn't functioning and the economy, you can't go to the grocery store and buy a piece of food that's wrapped in plastic somewhere else. Where are you going to get it from? You have to produce it yourself or you have to get it from somebody in your network, somebody you're in relationship with, or you have to generate something from the earth to which you and then make something to which you can barter or exchange for. So with my farm, I have the 30 acres. I'm working with a local farmer that I sought out and I'm growing organic hay on it. So 30 acres of organic hay and I'm able to enjoy the property but I'm also able to use it to produce something. And with that, I don't, I thought about cows, but even when I did the economics and the time I would have to put into it, it it didn't make sense for me right now. But the fact that I have all this organic hay that I'll have under production, if something did happen, and if my income went away, I would have an income with that. And I would have something very tangible that I could then exchange with. So I'm sharing with you some of my thought process. When we talk about investing in resources, I invested in land, which produces something which then is of valuable to people other than me that I could then barter with, that I could sell, that I could exchange for a half a cow or whatever. It puts me in a position to be able to do that. And that's what I'm able to produce in my own land with, with, with my own possessions. But you also need to think about, especially when you think back to COVID, your supply chains. And remember how all the supply chains were dramatically impacted and costs went up because you couldn't even get the pro, uh, products. And I would often drive past where the Palace of Auburn Hills is here in Michigan, north of Detroit. And that's where the D- Detroit Pistons used to play. And man, they, they, they raised that auditorium, that arena. And then there was GM trucks 
for like as far as the eye could see where that stadium used to be because all those trucks couldn't even get the microchips, uh, the semiconductor chips that were needed for those cars to then go hit the market. And then as you know, prices went up. So I remember toilet paper, right when COVID hit, you go, you go to uh, the grocery store and there was no toilet paper for, for quite some time. I remember going to Sam's Club once and there was something I got two of. And when I was checking out, the cashier said, you can only have one of those. And I'm like, okay, sorry, I didn't know. They were lim- limiting people from even buying two of uh, the, this certain item. And so that was going on everywhere because the supply chain was in chaos. So imagine if there's societal chaos, economic chaos, or there's war, and you need to provide for yourself and your family, where's your supply chain coming from? Even if you have money, have access to money, what happens if the product is not available for sale to you? Where are you going to get things? And that's one of the reasons why I've developed relationships with farmers. I have several farmers that I develop relationships with because (laughs) they're very connected to the earth from which we get our food, right? And so I'm able to well, I grow my, I have my own eggs, I have my own chickens, but there's, there's uh, maple syrup I buy from, from a local farmer. There's chickens I have access to, lambs, pig or pork. And I buy from my friend in his hundred acre farm, his grass fed, grass finished beef. And so I have those connections just to name a few. And if I needed something when others didn't have it, I probably could get access to it. And during the Great Depression, my family, they were uh, Irish from the south side of Chicago, and my great-grandfather was in the cattle business, and he did really well during the Great Depression, I was told by uh, one of my uncles the story, because he was sourcing cattle into Chicago during the Great Depression, because the farms did a lot better. My wife, some of her family they're Iowa farmers. And I remember talking to my wife's grandmother for an extended period of time. And I was asking her about the Great Depression. And I said, was it tough for you? And she said, no. She said, as a kid, I I didn't even know there was a Great Depression because we lived on a farm. We had all the eggs we wanted. We had all the milk we wanted. We had all the food we wanted. Uh, Growing up in in a rural area in Iowa on a farm, we actually weren't touched by the, the effects of the Great Depression. And that kind of illustrates the point I'm making. And, and back to my great-grandfather, because he was able to source cattle to the grocery stores and the restaurants in Chicago, he actually did well during the Great Depression. And so when I learned that story, what was that, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that, I, that was just a great encouragement and inspiration to me because no matter how difficult the situation is out there, there's always opportunities. And even if there's large-scale distress there's still an opportunity for for you to profit and to provide for yourself and your family. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but some people were able to navigate through the difficulty of the Great Depression, namely my great-grandfather and my wife's grandmother because of the situation that they were in. So think about how you're developing your own supply chains and think about how you can have access to knowledge. One of my farmer friends, when I talk with him, if I'm going to buy something from my property, I usually always consult with him because he's already researched all these things and he knows everything (laughs) about living off the land. And he sought out when he started his farm, he was in a different career and he was in the meat packaging, meat processing, and he just realized the need for organic, healthy food, especially in light of what he was seeing in the processing plants that led his family on a journey to start a hundred acre organic farm. And that's been their journey. And so when he did that, 
part of the mentors that he sought out were the Amish because the Amish, especially those that don't even believe you're supposed to use electricity, they know how to live off the land and they know how to do things very effectively because if you're not using electricity or power tools, they know how to do it the old little house on the prairie, 1850 way. And those are his mentors. And so I've gleaned secondhand some things uh, from my farmer friend. And so who's in your Rolodex? Who can you call? Who's in your supply chain? What relationships do you have that if, if things were difficult, that you would still be able to access some of the necessities of life? Where would your water come from? You know, that's when I moved into my current place, that's something that I thought about. And one of the amazing things about my current property is that I actually have an artesian well to where the aquifer, which my well is 225 feet deep, it taps into an aquifer that is actually pressurized to where the charging point is higher in elevation to than where my wellhead is. And so the water literally, when I first visited this house before I bought it, I looked at it, I said, I couldn't believe my eyes to where I said the water keeps coming out of the ground, <laughs> the fresh water keeps coming out of the ground. So even if there was a situation, let's say worst case scenario, there's an EMP and Congress has done studies, 90% of us would be dead within a year because of if there was an EMP and there would be mass chaos and starvation everywhere. And the first thing you would need before you need food is water. But here I have a well to where the water is literally just coming up out of the ground just by the geological uh, construction of what is around me and how the aquifer, the charging point is higher than the wellhead, which is kind of cool. And so that's an example of thinking ahead. You know, I may never need it. I hope I never need it. But if, if I, even though I have a backup generator, if it, it comes to a place to where I don't have natural gas to run the backup generator or there's an EMP and nothing that's electrical works, I have water. And then I have deer and turkey. I, I have chickens. I have hay. I have relationships. So I have some things that I can work with. I have silver in, in portions, in sizings that I could exchange for. Even over the last year, I spent because I had this small farm, I spent a good amount of money, probably close to six figures on a new tractor, 60 horsepower diesel tractor and a bunch of attachments. And as I was buying all of these things, you know, when you buy a car, can you say it's an investment? You usually can't, although the COVID car market kind of really messed things up to where car values are. I got a car that's worth $42,000 today. I paid 27 thousand for it in 2019. So it is kind of crazy in the car market, but in the tractor market, if you take care of a good diesel tractor, these things actually retain value in an amazing way. And then with all the implements, I'm able to use all that. And I, I'm able to also in my vantage point, at least right now, use it as a store of value too. So I invest in equipment that I can use now and that hopefully will retain value and perhaps become very valuable in a difficult situation. And by the way, I'm not hoping for a difficult situation. I hope none of that comes across here. What I'm saying is there's an old proverb that says the prudent man sees the disaster and prepares accordingly. And so you prepare accordingly, you make decisions that balance preparing for the worst while still not missing the enjoyment and opportunities that you have before you today. And for me, I also think about how this would impact my kids. So I make decisions so that I'm not doing radical decisions that would negatively impact them, but actually will provide for everything that they need in terms of education and growth and opportunities that I hope to help them with. And so you also want to develop a skill or a product that you could exchange for something. So think about like the capital within yourself. I mentioned hay and things like that, but, but what do you have inherently that could become valuable to somebody else in a time of need? Now, how does junior mining stocks and small cap speculations fit into everything that I'm saying to you? Well, I have not deviated from that at all. 
So my foundation is physical gold and silver. And you also need some cash too, by the way. And you probably need some cash, cash out of the bank. And that would be wise. (laughs) And I'll let you determine how much of that you need. But I think that even if things go down, you're going to need cash, at least for a period of time before people say, you know, the dollar is completely not worth anything if it comes to that. So that would be something you'd want to add too. But in terms of speculative junior mining stocks, resource stocks, I'm still doing that. And I have multiple seven figures of my own money deployed into small cap speculative stocks that I think have a great risk reward profile and growth profile. And in this environment, you want to start with strong macro fundamentals. You got to start top down, in my opinion. That's where I start. And think about the, the situations and how you think it might play out. What commodities would still need to be needed? What energy still needs to be needed in those situations. Michael Oliver was on the show and he talked about how he's super bullish grains. So you could do a grain investment. And he's, he said, my little farm here, <laughs> I'm indirectly invested in something like that is what he said to me in that interview. But I've written some big checks in the last six to eight months. And so I'm, I'm deploying and I'm still aggressive in this wealth accumulation phase of my life with my small cap speculations. But I'm starting with those macro fundamentals, those tailwinds. I'm starting with stocks to where I feel like I can recognize the value or the value creation that's about to happen that the market doesn't yet fully perceive so that my entry point can be a little more before everybody realizes, hey, yeah, there is something of value here. This could be a good growth profile. And I'm, I'm doing that because I'm confident in that I have other assets that allow me to do that. And I'm confident in my own ability to generate income, even from new sources, even if I lose my current income and I lose all of my money speculating in these, in these small cap stocks, I think I can earn that money back. That's just the way I think. Some people are so gripped by fear that they make a little money, they don't want to lose it. And then they just get paralyzed with decision making. You know, that's not me. But when I make a lot, maybe in the next few years in this, in this growth accumulation, I probably will pull a larger chunk aside and go into more conservative investments, yet still play in the smaller uh, speculative small cap stocks. But one thing, as me and a few friends, a recent large check we wrote in an investment, we put a lot of due diligence into it, probably 60 hours or more, including spending time with management, flying across the country, going and looking at project. And we said to ourselves before we determined how much and would we, would we do it as we analyzed the, the risks associated with and the size of the check we were, we were each willing to write, we said, you know, let me think about, my friend said to me, he said, Bill, I know, I've known you for a long time. Think about the check you're about to write. How many years of your life in, in, a, in a previous phase of your life did it take you to earn that money that you're about to write the check for? How hard did you have to work to, to earn that check? And the reason why I'm, I'm bringing that up is that, you know, we, we can get drunk on the greed side of the risk reward profile, get drunk on the, the possible reward. But I liked how he phrased that to me. That was just a really good way to think about it because it doesn't mean I'm not supposed to write a large check, but because he's known me for so long and he's known from where I've come that it was good for him to remind me, think about this. And then we spent days and a lot more hours going through before we decided we came to a positive uh, decision. So I just share that little nugget with you. If you're going to write a big check, if you're going to bet big, before you do, one of the things you should think about is how hard it was to earn that amount of capital. 
that you're going to put into one little stock. If it hits, you can make a lot of money, a crazy amount of money. But if you lose it, would it hurt your life? And so do think about how hard it was to earn that sizable amount of money. And my last point to you is in difficult times to stay generous. And that's been a theme through these monologues when I've done them over the last few years. That's how I live my life. Give, give generously. You know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But at the same time, give and be generous. I I have a personal charity that I have. I set up just for my family so that I can give generously. And it's also tax advantageous to me. And I look for ways to be generous with my own money. And I look for generous ways to be generous with other people's money. I'm not asking you for money. I'm not even telling you the charity. I don't want your money. But I did approach a guy with a piece of property in December. And I said, hey, uh, donate your piece of property uh, to me here to my charity for a tax write-off. Please ask your accountant if it'll work. I'll even pay for uh, this particular accountant to give you a free analysis and consultation to see what your tax write-off would be if you donate this to me because I would take this and I would do this good charitable thing with this piece of land. And that's how I think. I want to make a lot of money so I can give away a lot of money. Ultimately, this isn't about self-preservation, although you do have to think about how to provide for yourself and your family through difficult times, but do it with others, thinking of others as well. How can you be a blessing to others through difficult times? So stay generous. Just some of my thoughts, thoughts that I've been having with conversations with others, which caused me to reflect back on how I've prepared for possible difficult times. And I appreciate your listenership as always. This is Bill Powers signing off. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.